Hello and welcome back to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major, and welcome back to the barn here in Nova Scotia. You'll be happy to know that the temperature is now above five Celsius, which is pretty much like being in the tropics, so I'm really enjoying that. And I've taken some feedback from uh, a listener who said, do you own any non-synthetic clothing? Because <laughs> you could wear natural fibers and then there wouldn't be this rustling sound in the background constantly. So I have unpacked myself out of my North Face parka and taken off my uh, skidoo mitts. And I'm now sitting here in a rather nice uh, wool jacket overcoat which I bought in France a number of years ago and I have a wool scarf on and I'm, uh, I'm feeling pretty pretty dapper so now I've got both the fashion sense and the face to present a podcast. So this episode I am going to talk through somebody asked me who are your heroes in sailing and uh, and and generally you know who are the people that um, you feel most inspired by and I want to keep it around sailing. I, I worked for Outward Bound for a number of years, so I've had the great luck to be involved with a community of people who are in constant conversation about inspiring people, inspiring stories, because it's part of our work providing uh, personal developmental courses. You know, you want to be able to give examples of when people have overcome adversity and when they've uh, ended up doing incredible things. So. Um, I, I'm very aware of some uh, amazing people, um, but I think if we keep it around sailing, that'll that'll keep it corralled up a little bit, and then we can uh, discuss them in relation to, you know, how I draw inspiration from them when I'm on the water, when I'm doing the things I'm doing, because uh, some of them it's it's a very practical, direct link. So, um, I guess when you're doing something like this, the the first step off would be well, my biggest hero is, and then just list the big names in sailing. You know, obviously, if you go back a little bit, you're talking about um, Bernard Mortissier and Sir Robert Knox Johnson and the guys that were in the Golden Globe race. Then you might be talking about Shea Blythe and all the things that he did both, you know, he did rowing across the Atlantic. He entered the Golden Globe, but very sensibly got off the race course because he realized he probably would kill himself if he continued, but he came back and then he went west around the world. And um, then you could talk about um, Mike Golding, the British sailor who worked for Sachet Blythe and won the global challenge race in group four and then went into solo sailing, did west around the world solo and then did the Vendee Globe. And it would be very easy to talk about people like that, but I have to say that I don't get any inspiration from them at all. And I, that does not mean in any way that I cast aspersions on any of those people. They're all done incredible things in their lives. I think for me, there's a group of people which I get that emotional, you know, what is inspiration, I guess would be the question here. Inspiration is that you want to try and better somebody. Like I'm inspired by uh, Jean-Luc van der Heet because he holds the record for West around the world so it's very close to my heart. Am I inspired by him because he did that or am I inspired to go and try and beat him? Hmm, not sure. I am inspired by Jean van der Heet and that's something that I want to discuss but it's, uh, it's because of his tenacity uh, that I, I find him to be an incredible person. So in these things, this group of people, I think they have elements about them which I find inspiring when I'm at my low moments and because they have 
moved me towards sailing. And then when I think about them and I think about the things they've done, it reminds me of my own kind of origin story. <laughs> so the first one I want to kick off with is uh, Dame Naomi James. So if you don't know who Naomi James is, and I think we can call her Naomi James without worrying too much about the Dame bit because she doesn't seem to use it herself. She is the first woman ever to sail solo around the world. South of the three stormy capes. Her route took her down to the Cape of Good Hope and then across the bottom of the world to Australia and New Zealand and then out across the Pacific and uh, around Cape Horn and back up the Atlantic. Now, it worked out that she was actually at sea at the same time as Poland's Kristina chojnowski liskowitz I hope I got that right or I didn't murder it too badly. chojnowska liskowitz and she became the first woman to sail solo around the world, but they were at the sea at the same time. And Christina went around the world through the Panama Canal and then through the mid-Pacific. And she certainly circumnavigated, no doubt there, but she went through the Panama Canal and it is a different kind of challenge. And she actually only got back about two months before Naomi James. So, um, it, you know, it's not a competition, doesn't matter. But Dame Naomi James is the person whose book I read that really informed me about what she'd done, and that's when she became my heroine. Uh, Naomi James departed from Dartmouth in the UK in 1977, which Dartmouth I know very, very well. Uh, that's an area where I learned to sail, so I guess in my mind there's uh, a, a kind of uh, an awareness of what that must be like. Uh, and I was actually born in October 1977, but the, the, none of it connects. I wasn't there or anything, and I wasn't in Dartmouth at that time, but there's some connectivity there of like, oh yeah, okay, these numbers and this place is important in my mind. But she set off, and at that time, you know, the 1970s, a woman going and doing this was an incredible thing. Um, now we have people, another dame, Ellen MacArthur, who of course has done incredible things with her Vendée Globe pursuits coming second in the 2000 Vendée Globe. All of the exploits she had with her B&Q trimaran, uh, racing for records solo non-stop around the world. Like she did some amazing things, but it was of a time in the 2000, 2001, 2002, that kind of period where it wasn't impossible to imagine a woman going and doing that. It was uh, it was part of a new breath of fresh air that had been started to blowing through all these uh, uh, gender relationships, and uh, it was appropriate and fitting that um, she should be going and doing that, and uh, and proving the point that women can do whatever it is they damn well want to do. If you scuttle back twenty years, and it's 1977, this is a little bit more of an unusual thing. And Naomi James, <laughs> another thing I love about her is that she wasn't really a sailor. <laughs> um, she, she met her husband, or soon to be future husband, uh, Rob James in 1975. And uh, he was working on a charter boat and they went to um, go on honeymoon and, and kind of uh, hang out and be together. And she decided that um, she wanted to sail solo around the world <laughs> so let's get this so she's not a sailor she meets a guy that's a charter skipper and then she decides by the time they're on the honeymoon that she wants to sail solo around the world so you know people have said stuff like that many 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 times i'm sure you know i want to climb everest yeah no, no, no problem but have they gone and done it and that's the difference is that if you ever achieve something 
you know, momentous, whether that be sporting or uh, in your uh, your professional life or, or whatever, any kind of area where you step out of the ordinary and you as an ordinary person end up doing something extraordinary, you know the scale of effort that you have to put into doing something. When it's something like, I'm gonna go and sail solo around the world, the scale of effort is uh, <laughs> dis disproportionate to how easy it is to say, I'm gonna go and do it. Do you know how many people I've met who say they're gonna go and sail uh, around the world or sail solo around the world even. And I think actually it's a line that I, I heard Sir Robin Knox Johnson say to us once when I was working for him. And his line to them and my line to people that is, come back and talk to me about it when you've done it. Because it's far too easy for you to get involved in a conversation where the anticipation of what you're going to do is being weighed in balance with what someone has gone and done. A lot of younger people moving up into professions and sports do this where they will be discussing with a mentor what they're going to do and they're balancing that at the same weight as what somebody has done. And it's, it's that old thing, show me the money. You know, if you say you're gonna go and sail around the world solo, awesome, great, great chat, have another glass of wine, come back and tell me you did it, huh, okay, now that is a thing. So she did it <laughs> and that's what's completely crazy. So her guy, Rob, he worked for uh, Shea Blythe, who at this point had already sailed solo nonstop west around the world, setting the initial record for what was known as the impossible voyage. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that later on, because as I say, that, that West About thing is something that's uh, right at the front of my brain at the moment. Somehow she manages to persuade Shea Blythe to, to do it. I suspect that what he wanted to do was be a force helping emancipate women and, and, and prove what they can do. And I, I hope that's exactly what it was because that makes him even more awesome. But I suspect also it's because she was just not gonna be stopped. She wanted to do this thing and so she damn well made it happen. So she sets off in 1977 on this, uh, on this boat that she's got. The boat previously had been called uh, the Spirit of Cutty Sark, but it was renamed as the Express Crusader because uh, the Daily Express, a newspaper in the UK, had raised some sponsorship money to, to, to make this happen. It was 53 foot long, which is about 16 meters, and, um, and, you know, and a pretty kind of normal boat, not like some racing boat, not some like high latitudes boat, not anything other than, you know, a 53 foot boat is a big boat, but it was, it was a boat. <laughs> it was a, a full keel boat, like what can you say? It's, uh, they set it up so that she could run it uh, uh, single-handed, but it was <laughs> as, as near as damn it, just basically she got herself a boat and off she went. And that's what makes her story awesome. She just, she didn't set herself up for failure by saying it has to be this, it has to be that, um, it has to be done in this way or that way. You know, <laughs> she had been tutored as much as possible by her partner Rob in everything that she could possibly know on board the boat but as we all know as sailors you can have all of this stuff given to you but it's only experience over time that really cements it and and makes it part of who you are so she set off having been well tutored but I think she'd be the first to say she didn't really know what she's doing so <laughs> you know I could tell you that like the whole 
whole story of everything, go, go and read the book. That's, that's the, the main thing is uh, with all this stuff is go and, go and find out what it was for yourself. There's, um, there's a book that she wrote called At One With The Sea, Alone Around The World. I think I read it in about 2000, something like that. Yeah, about the year 2000. So at that point, I'd been working on a tall ship as a rigger. Um, I'd done some sea miles. I'd maybe sailed from Hong Kong to Japan. But I hadn't done much else, but I had this in the back of my head that this incredible woman just decided this is what I'm gonna do. And then she went and did it. And I find that not only did she go and do it, now that's another thing is that, yeah, you could set off on some harebrained idea, like, yeah, I'm gonna go and sail around the world, but are you actually going to complete it? because there's a lot of people say they're gonna do it and then don't go and do it at all. And there's a lot of people that say they're gonna do it and go and do it, but then realize very quickly it was a very bad idea. <laughs> you know, she could have easily stopped off in Gibraltar, end of story, easily stopped off in the Canaries, end of story. Um, she could have gone across to, uh, she'd have to have crossed to the west side of the Atlantic as she goes south to avoid the St. Helena High. So you can just end up going, ah, oh, I'm not gonna do this and go to the Caribbean or, you know, there's lots of ways of, but she just kept going. Now she did make a couple of stops on the way. So she didn't do solo nonstop around the world, but she was the first woman to sail single-handed around the world. And what's cool is that she actually, she'd done it to, um, to try and go and beat um, Sir Francis Chichester's time. And she did. And it was only by a very small amount, actually. I haven't got it right here in front of me, but if I remember correctly, it was like literally a couple of days. She, she beat uh, Sir Francis Chichester's time. So yeah, an incredible woman. And um, there's a whole history to her. She doesn't do anything in sailing now. She doesn't use that term, uh, dame, I understand. Uh, she lives in Ireland and uh, I find her story to be incredible of just like the simplicity of it. Like, I wanna go and do this thing, I'm gonna go and do it. There's too many people that have these dreams of what they wanna do and then they feel like it's out of sight. Like the, the first thing is you've gotta break out of the glass walls that are of your own making, these walls of convention that you create. Like, well, yeah, I'd love to do that, but you know, I've gotta do this and I gotta do that and gotta do the other. It's like from working for Outward Bound, I have found that it's all too easy to end up being engaged in some massively complicated and difficult task and then not doing anything to put gas in your tank. And if you're with a lot of very positive people, then they're gonna be, yeah, come on, you can do it, you know, just get down to it. But you have to build it from within as well and your task is made a hundred times harder if you're not surrounded by supportive people or indifferent people when you're not getting anything positive in. So I'm very much a believer that if you're involved in difficult times, if you're finding that your life at that moment is bogged down and slow or there's difficulty or whatever, you've got to go out and you've got to find inspiration. And that has to be, you know, consciously seeking it and so go on youtube like we live in the 21st century youtube inspirational video enter and then you get all sorts of stuff now some of it is like you know big thumping bass tracks meant for people in gyms like working out hard but some of it is incredible discourse from people that that themselves have achieved like i don't mind listening to people talking big but I, I have come across a lot of keynote speakers, a lot of people who are like students of how to be a speaker, but they haven't actually ever done anything. And they maybe don't even come from particularly difficult backgrounds that they can even, they're just telling other people how to do stuff. And like, that's enough. Like, I think that's a little bit, it rings hollow for me. So whenever I wanna 
get inspired by somebody, I need to know that, that person themselves has kind of used this thing that they're telling me to overcome or to be successful. Back to Naomi James, yeah, she she walked the walk and I do find it wonderful and again, inspiring in a different way that she's very humble afterwards and isn't being wheeled out on every bloody occasion to tell people what she did. For people to be inspiring to me, they need to have walked the walk, they need to be humble and they need to be, be like kind of relevant. If they're claiming relevancy, show me the money. Okay, uh, the next one is um, Joshua Slocum. And before you all start groaning and yes, yes, Joshua Slocum, the first man to sail solo around the world, it doesn't matter. It's still an awesome story. And actually the reason that I love Joshua Slocum's voyage around the world is actually because of his writing. I'm not surprised to hear that a he was already a tall ship captain. He actually had a ship called the Northern Lights, which I'm not sure exactly the lineage, but isn't there like generators on ships made by a company called Northern Lights? Like, is that where they got their name from? If not, maybe not. But what he's most famous for is that he went around the world in the late 1800s on his ship, Spray. And Spray, of course, has become embedded in sailing law. Like no other boat, maybe, like, well, Cutty Sark, maybe, here in Nova Scotia, in Canada, the Blue Nose, like there's a couple of vessels like that around the world, but you'd be, you're talking about a couple of handfuls of them, not, not many, that really like speak to people, that really speak to a generation or to a nation. But Spray, which was just this little boat, <laughs> Spray was a, a little gaff-rigged oyster boat and uh, he rebuilt it. And I think it was literally in a field somewhere he found it. He fixed it all up and got it back on the water and it was just 36 foot nine, which is like 11, just over 11 meters, right? And in April of 1895, he set sail from Boston. And I, I still don't know exactly why he set off. Like at the beginning of it, and I'm gonna read some excerpts from his book here. So I hope you'll uh, forgive me my uh, non-original content here. But um, you know, how can you say I'm, I'm inspired by this person and then <laughs> because of their writing and then not include some of their writing. So he says at the, at the beginning of the book, I had resolved on a voyage around the world and as the wind on the morning of April 24th, 1895 was fair, at noon, I weighed anchor, set sail and filled away from Boston where the spray had been moored snugly all winter. The 12 o'clock whistles were blowing just as a sloop shot ahead under full sail. A short board was made up the harbor on the port tack, then coming about, she stood to seaward with her boom well off to port and swung past the ferries with lively heels. A photographer, on the outer pier of East Boston got a picture of her as she swept by, her flag at the peak throwing her folds clear. A thrilling pulse beat high in me. My step was light on deck in the crisp air. I felt there could be no turning back and that I was engaging in an adventure, the meaning of which I thoroughly understood. Isn't that awesome? Like. I find a number of things that are awesome. Like if you go to the Wikipedia page in which that, that uh, little quote uh, appears, there's a picture of the boat. And it's just as he describes, like with the, the flag, you know, flying and uh, the photographers obviously caught it. Like somebody caught a picture of somebody setting off like on a first, like a first first. Like obviously people have been sailing. Well, no, let's, let's 
let's not do that a disservice actually. Lots of people had set off around the world, like ships had sailed around the world. Like people had set off on voyages like, I'm gonna go here, then I'm gonna go there, and then by the end of it, I'll come back this way, and that's around the world. The difference is, he's going on his own. <laughs> on his own, in like a little 40-foot boat. Like, everybody that came thereafter knew it could be done. Like the book was was published like very early on. I actually am very, very lucky in that I have a first edition of this book. It's one of my most treasured um, possessions and it's it's 1900. So unfortunately he he did not survive very much longer after that. Like not to put, not to spoiler alert, but he, uh, he does end up like passing away and it's by 1909. So the book goes out, you know, turn of the century and, and within nine years he's actually uh, doesn't come back from his last uh, voyage. So, but it doesn't matter. The, the point is, like, he sets off into the, like, total unknown as to whether this thing can be done or not. Like, think how many things in your life you've gone, like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, there's plenty, certainly plenty in my life. I'm sure there are in yours as well. But he was setting off on something where he's like, I don't know if this is even possible for a human. Even when you talk about the 1969 Golden Globe race and they were going like solo nonstop, could you do it nonstop was like almost academic. Like Sir Francis Chichester had stopped in New Zealand. Clearly you could, if you could just get the boat round without breaking it and you had enough stores, like, yes, you can, but Slocum is setting off like it, all throughout the book. So many people like come on board the boat and go, where's the crew? Like it was just so unheard of. It's like someone saying, I'm going to fly from New York to London, but I'm just going to going to flap my arms like wings and I'll get there. It's like that level of difficulty. So that picture of him sailing out of the harbor, you, you almost can't see the boat because there's just a massive pair of balls there, which is, I don't know, I, I find this guy incredible. Maybe we won't include that. Okay, so I want to read another couple of bits from Slocum. Uh, I think the other thing I should reveal here, if, if it needs revealing, is that Joshua Slocum was born like 60 miles from where I'm sat right now. He was born in Mount Hanley, which is in the Annapolis Valley on the northern shore of Nova Scotia. And I live on the south shore, so I basically need to come out of my house, one right turn, one left turn, and get on the highway, and about an hour from now, I'll be there. Like, this person is is very close. Now, he became a naturalized American, which, you know, that's, a lot of that was going on. This area of the world at that time was just a massive hotbed. In fact, where I live was really the start of uh, shipbuilding on the South Shore. It moved very quickly to Lunenburg, which is very close by, but where I live, literally the bay where my boat is moored, Black Bay, is where they started building ships in this area. So I am in the, the heartland of um, an area which is best characterized by the phrase wooden ships and iron men. Like you think the 1800s, when these people were sailing, the world was colder than it is now. There have been uh, environmental changes. So when they're talking about people fishing on the Grand Banks, and they're talking about these people going to sea in the 1700s, the 1800s, North Atlantic, the South Pacific, these kind of places, it is very cold, very, very cold. And the people that went out onto the water in these times alone, all of them are all massively inspiring. But someone setting out at that time to go solo, you know, that's that's Nova Scotia strong. Um, and that's a phrase which is 
I'm glad to hear it's being thrown around. Obviously, those who are watching the news will know that there's not a lot going on in Nova Scotia. It's beautiful, but there isn't a lot going on in this entire province of Canada. We have a population of less than a million in a massive, massive area. We have this wonderful coastline with all of these incredible maritime facilities, but there's not much going on here. With COVID-19 coming along, a lot of that is shut down. But then what has happened in the last couple of days is we had this madman out and about on the streets killing just, he's killed like over 20, 22 people. So, you know, Nova Scotia is hurting at the moment and scared and uh, its, its confidence in itself is somewhat shaken, I believe. So to hear now this phrase, Nova Scotia strong being used, I'm very glad to hear that. And uh, this is an incredible part of the world with an incredible maritime history. And um, they've given a lot to sailing and developed a lot. And uh, they deserve to be better known uh, as, a, as a province, as an area, as a, as a birthplace for a lot of modern seamanship um, than, than they are. So but let's read a little bit from um, Joshua Slocum, <laughs> give you an idea of exactly uh, why I think this guy is, is worthy of being a, a hero. So there's also a style of writing, which I love from this sort of period, the 1900s. Sometimes stuff from this era can be very dry and very difficult to access. Like if you're reading South by Ernest, Sir Ernest Shackleton, it's such a dry account of an um, unbelievable adventure that you can like yawn off to sleep and, and not even realize that yeah, this person's like on the edge of human possibility. And he's like, and then we hiked for 18 hours in which three men got frostbite and we barely escaped with our lives. You're like, Jesus wept, you know, but now everything has to have neon lights and exploding fireworks and massive hyperbole attached to it. Back in the day, people just told you how it was going and that was that. So this is chapter six. Um, I'll just read for a couple minutes here. So uh, are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. On November 28th, the spray sailed from Rio de Janeiro and first of all ran into a gale of wind which tore up things generally along the coast, doing considerable damage to shipping. It was well for her, perhaps, that she was clear of the land. Coasting along on this part of the voyage, I observed that while some of the small vessels I fell in with were able to outsail the spray by day, they fell astern of her by night. To the spray, day and night were the same. To the others, clearly, there was a difference. Like right there, <laughs> he's, he's, it's like one of the rules of how to be fast offshore when you're racing. Like you need to be happy at night as well as the daytime. You, you can't have it where you're freaking out all the time about, oh, reef, because it's nighttime. Now, if you've got a family on board, if you've got inexperienced people on board, if you don't know the boat so well, if you're an inexperienced, absolutely, of course, of course, of course, you must make the boat as safe as possible and you must have your life jacket on and you must be tethered to the deck. But if you're racing or if you're a professional seafarer as he was, day and night blend into one and it, it doesn't really make any difference in the end. I often say to people, I only really have four memories from sailing. It's daytime good weather, daytime bad weather, nighttime good weather, nighttime bad weather. And they need to tell me first which one of those four situations we were in before they then get me to remember what's the particular story they're talking about because that's just did it. It always looks the same. It's either nighttime or daytime. It's either blowing or it's not blowing and that's it. But once you've got that in, in your mind and your heart, a lot of stress goes down because you're not 
petrified by the nighttime, a lot of very good aspects of seamanship start to come to the fore because you are making sure the boat's safe at night. You're very careful about the weather, the wind, the setup, your safety on deck, all these things come. So anyway, God, we've got to keep going, haven't we? Right, so on one of the very fine days experienced after leaving Rio, the steamship South Wales spoke the spray and unsolicited gave the longitude by chronometer as 48 degrees west. As near as I can make it, the captain said. The spray with her tin clock had exactly the same reckoning. I was feeling at ease in my primitive method of navigation, but it startled me not a little to find my position by account verified by the ship's chronometer. On December the 5th, a barkentine hove in sight, and for several days the two vessels sailed along the coast together. Right here, a current was experienced setting north, making it necessary to hug the shore, with which the spray became rather familiar. Here, I confess a weakness. I hugged the shore entirely too close. And in a word, at daybreak on the morning of December the 11th, the spray ran hard and fast on the beach. <laughs> That's it. Not like, bang, crash, we're gonna make a YouTube video about it. Oh my God, like rigging failure. Like, no, no, he's just like, yeah, I, I'm gonna have to tell you, I, I went aground. And his next line is, is classic Slocum. He says, this was annoying. But I soon found that the sloop was in no great danger. <laughs> this, this was annoying. I'm completely on my own. It's a 40-foot wooden boat, which, you know, okay, it's small for crossing oceans, but it's still, it's still going to weigh many tons, and he's hard and fast with nothing else. Like, you know, this is the 1800s. He's not got an EPIRB. He's not got a VHF. He's just got his position confirmed by a steamship, although he didn't ask for it. He's doing navigation by a tin clock and by the moon and by the sun and stars. Like, and I say moon first because he actually had some very odd, and that's where he even describes his own navigational methods as um, uh, primitive methods of navigation. He did some very odd things, a lot of things with lunar periods that you need to read the book to understand, but uh, it's all... <laughs> I think it's more by like him like, hmm, that looks like a good direction than anything else. But he was, of course, a very, very experienced ship's master by this point. So he had it in hand. But yeah, he's gone aground with this multi-ton bow on his own. So it was quite annoying. And of course, he had to fix it himself. He says, the false appearance of the sand hills under a bright moon had deceived me. And I lamented now that I had trusted to appearances at all. The sea, though moderately smooth, still carried a swell which broke with some force on the shore. I managed to launch my small dory from the deck and ran out a kedge anchor and warp, but it was too late to kedge the sloop off, for the tide was falling and she already had sewed a foot. Okay, so just to explain a few things there. So a dory is a flat-bottomed boat, which is very, very popular in this part of the world. In fact, in the barn right here, just on the other side of the studio area that I set up for the seamanship videos, there is actually a small dory in here. So they're double-ended and um, the ones from this part of the world, well, I shouldn't say that they're, they're all double-ended, they're not. Newfoundland dories have got like a flat transom and a pointed bow, which would be what you'd expect in like a more modern boat, almost like where you would put a motor, but they far precede anything like that. 
the ones from Nova Scotia, and I think from the Boston area as well, are double-ended, which means that you literally can stack them on deck. And what they would do is the, sister, the, the sister ship, the mother ship, which would be like a big thing, 150-foot schooner of some description, would go out onto the Grand Banks fishing, and then they would have all these dories stacked on deck, and then each man would be put into a dory with you know, supplies and some oars, and maybe some of them had a little sail and mittens and a, and a little lamp and things like this. And then they would be then jigging for the cod. They'd be over the side with their fishing gear and they would be the ones catching the cod by long lines into that. You can't tow a net very effectively with a, <laughs> with a sailing vessel. What would be happening is that these ships would be the, the hold and the container and the, the mother ship for these primarily men in the dories doing the fishing. So uh, they're flat bottom so they could be stacked on deck one inside of the other so then they can then move to another place. And um, can you imagine being on the Grand Banks off Newfoundland um, in the winter in the 1700s, 1800s, like talk about cold, like, oh my God, I don't wanna think about it. But anyway, in the image that I see here, the boat that he's holding onto is not even five foot long and it's it's got a, a square stern on it. I'm, I think probably uh, coming from Boston, from Nova Scotia, he would have had a double-ended uh, Scotia or, or um, Connecticut style uh, dory or Maine style dory rather. So when he says that this boat is, you know, small, he's, he's talking about something that's like, I don't know, six feet long, made of wood, and itself weighs probably, you know, a hundred odd pounds, but uh, it's pretty tiny. So then what does he do with it? He says he, he managed to set out a kedge anchor and warp. So a kedge anchor is a little anchor that you put out the back of the boat, often used for like pulling yourself off or positioning the boat. You've got your main bower anchor at the front, which is the one which you're gonna be sticking down. You then probably got a secondary anchor, which would be backing that up, which maybe have a slightly different design so that you can hold in different kinds of uh, bottom material. But the kedge anchor is something which is there for like, oh, the bow's gone onto the shore. You run out the kedge anchor in the dory, oh, sorry, in the dory, in the dinghy, or in the, or in the dinghy dory if you've got one of those. And then you can, you know, get it to grip into the bottom and then crank yourself in or put pressure on it. And then you can pull the boat back off things. So, and then warp obviously is just another name for the, the, the rope for the, for the land lovers listening to this, the rope that's attached to the anchor, we call that an anchor warp, okay? So he, he launches his little uh, dinghy, his dory from the deck, and he runs out this anchor from the back of the boat and the rope attached to it um, so that he can kedge, he can pull the boat off. But the tide's already dropping and it's sewed a foot, which is a phrase uh, which means that it's um, she got herself settled into the, into the sand. The foot of the keel has now sewed itself a line into the sand, okay? So then he says, uh, then I went about laying out the larger anchor, which was no easy matter for my only lifeboat, the frail dory, when the anchor and cable were in it, was swamped at once, the load being too great for her. Then I cut the cable and made two loads of it instead of one. The anchor with 40 fathoms bent and already buoyed, I took now and succeeded in getting through the surf, but my dory was leaking fast. And by the time I had rowed far enough to drop the anchor, she was full to the gunwale and sinking. There was not a moment to spare and I saw clearly that if I failed now, all might be lost. I sprang from the oars to my feet and lifting the anchor above my head, threw it clear just as she was turning over. I grasped her gunwale and held on as she turned bottom up, for I suddenly remembered that I could not swim. <laughs> 
So he's got the little bow out through the swell, but clearly this load of this big anchor that he's putting out, which he's gonna use later to probably, you know, drag himself off, um, it's just too heavy. So the boat's starting to sink. So as it gets to that point where it's getting so unsteady with all the water inside it, he takes a split decision like, if this little dory sinks and just tips the anchor out with all the rope as it is now, that's it. I'm not gonna be able to um, save this situation. So he lifts the anchor up, chucks it over the side, and in doing so, the dory rolls over. And that's when he realizes, or remembers as he puts it, that he can't swim. Like, it's understated, but it's brilliant writing. And it describes, you know, again, he is hundreds of miles from any help. There is nothing. There is no VHF, there's no phone, there's no walk down the beach and find somebody. He's just on his tod. And if he can't get himself out of there, like the options are pretty dire. I don't quite know what his next move would be. Probably take that little dory to sea and try and get out towards the shipping lanes rowing and try and get on a ship, in which case everything he owns in this boat, spray is gone. All right, let's, let's finish him up here and see how this finishes out. He says, then I tried to write her, but with too much eagerness for she rolled clean over and left me as before clinging to her gunnel while my body was still in the water. Giving a moment to cool reflection, I found that although the wind was blowing moderately toward the land, the current was carrying me to sea, and that something would have to be done. Three times I had been underwater in trying to right the dory, and I was just saying, now I lay me, when I was seized by a determination to try yet once more, so that no one of the prophets of evil I had left behind me could say, I told you so, Whatever the danger might have been, much or little, I can truly say that the moment was the most serene of my life. After writing the dory for the fourth time, I finally succeeded by the utmost care in keeping her upright while I hauled myself into her and with one of the oars which I recovered, paddled to the shore, somewhat the worse for wear and pretty full of salt water. So what he's referring to there when he says, now I lay me, it's a, a, children's, a children's nursery rhyme, a children's prayer, I guess, for bedtime often. It was written by a guy called Joseph Addison, and it first came out in 1711, but it was a later version was printed in the New England Primer, which is exactly where Slocum is from. And it goes like this, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. So when he says there, Three times I had been underwater in trying to write the dory. And as I was just saying, now I lay me when I was seized by a determination to try once more. So he thought he was going to die. But the thing that got him going is that he didn't want to have those people that he left behind in um, Boston who said to him, oh, you can't do it. You can't sail around the world on your own. He didn't want them to be saying to him later on, I told you so. And that is, I think, shows the, the humanness of this hero. In that moment, he's just like, hell's teeth. I'm not going to have them beat me. I'm not going to be proven wrong. I can do this. So he steps up again and does this, the, the, the impossible and gets this dory righted. So think about the person and the, the time that he did it and the situation he was in and the, the naysayers that he would have um, been up against to... To, to set off on this thing and the fact that he came back and, and had done it again like Naomi James, not just that he said, I'm going to go and do it or that he set off on it, which seemed in our culture to have almost equal value to succeeding, but that he dreamt it up. 
he knew what he was doing when he set off. It's not like he accidentally went and sailed around the world. So I think the first person ever to sail all the way around the world that we know of is one of the crew of Magellan's ship called Enrico. He was from the Spice Islands, which is the Philippines, and he had come from the Philippines back to Europe with one of Magellan's previous voyages. And then he went with Magellan as Magellan set off west around the world because they were looking for the same islands. So they took Enrico with them so that they could you know, communicate with those people when they got there. So Enrico went from the Philippines to Europe, from Europe back to the Philippines, having gone from east to west all the way around the world. So, but he didn't like mean to do it, he didn't set off. So I love the fact that it was conscious, that it was knowledgeable, that it was something that he knew he was gonna go and do, and then he got to it and he made it happen and he struggled through things and he uh, and his writing, although it's got that 1900 style, the fact that he includes, you know, you know, the, the boat washed onto the beach, he could have just missed it out. He could have said, oh, yeah, it went on the beach, but I got it off easily because I'm such a great seaman. If he wanted to be taken seriously as a seafarer, then he could have written the book differently. But he wanted to tell his story of what it meant to him. And I guess that's another theme that goes through the heroes I have that they have real passion for the thing and they're not just doing it for fame and they're not just doing it for accolade or money or whatever. They're doing it because they knowingly want to do it and because it has meaning to them that they go and do it. And I say Bernard Matissier would be very much on the edge of that, but I just want to steer clear of talking about him because I, you know, he's, he's everybody's hero. It's, it's, it's somebody that shows up all the time in, uh, in, in this kind of discussion. So, let me bring you to another one of my heroes, and that is Sterling Hayden. Now, Sterling Hayden is probably most likely to come across your bows with some quote of his, but but who was he? Like, he was an actor in the in the fifties and the sixties. He was in Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. He was in um, Nicholas Ray's Johnny Guitar. Uh, He's in The Asphalt Jungle. He was in. Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove. He was in all sorts of things that at the time were big. He was Captain McCluskey in uh, Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather, right? So he's in all sorts of stuff. But the interesting thing about him is that he himself, when he described who he was, when people uh, talk about him, he described himself as a sailor or writer rather than an actor. So this is something that he wrote in his uh, autobiography, Wanderer, the sun beats down and you pace, you pace and you pace. Your mind flies free and you see yourself as an actor condemned to a treadmill wherein men and women conspire to breathe life into a screenplay that allegedly depicts life as it was in the old wild west. You see yourself coming awake any one of a thousand mornings between the spring of 1954 and that of 1958, alone in a double bed in a big white house deep in suburban Sherman Oaks, not far from Hollywood. The windows are open wide, and beyond these is the backyard swimming pool, inert and green, within a picket fence. You turn and gaze at a pair of desks not far from the double bed. This is your private office, the place that shelters your fondest hopes. These desks so neat, patiently waiting for the day that never comes, the day you'll sit down at last and begin to write. Why did you never write? Why, instead, did you grovel along through the endless months and years as a motion picture actor? What held you to it 
to something you so vehemently professed to despise? Could it be that you secretly liked it, that the big dough and the big house and the high life meant more than the aura you spun for those around you to see? Hayden's wild, they say. He's kind of nuts, but you've got to hand it to him. He doesn't give a damn about the loot or the stardom or things like that. Something to do with his seafaring or maybe what he went through in the war. So that's him talking about himself. And I find it very interesting to, to read that and to understand, yeah, this guy is living the life which, which we have shoved down our throats constantly as being like, this is what you want. You want money, you want fame, you want a big house in the suburbs. And he's like describing it, I think, as, as a kind of prison. And he keeps looking at those desks and thinking that's what he wants to do. He wants to write and he wanted to sail. And he did, of course, end up going and doing that. His... Um, inclusion in this. I, you know, I don't know much about him as a man, his films and all that kind of stuff. It's not like I really got into who he was, but what I see in him is someone who, he had a passion for the sea and he had a, a passion which, which took him away from, you know, you think, well, he's super successful. He's doing whatever he's doing. He's making his money. He's, you know, tens of thousands, millions of people adore him for what he's doing in these films. And yet he just could not get the salt out of his veins. Like try as he might, he, he had everything and then he just kind of walked away from it. And I, I found out about him. I was actually in Nepal doing a descent of the Sunkozy River with the Outward Bound uh, School that I worked for in Hong Kong. And we went with a group called Ultimate Descents. And that company was headed by a chap who's unfortunately passed away now called Dave Allardyce. And he, I found to be an incredibly inspiring guy. He opened up um, Bangladesh and Pakistan and India and uh, Tibet, uh, Nepal, Bhutan. He went and did loads of expeditions, kayaking, rafting. And as tourism started in those countries, started offering these incredible uh, rafting expeditions. Um, I went twice with uh, Dave. First one was in Nepal down the Sankozi, which is not an unusual trip, but the second one was the Tons River in India, uh, in the foothills of the Himalaya, um, very, very far from anywhere. And uh, I was lucky enough on the second one to actually uh, paddle paddle that river. Um, and it was a, a number of class five rapids, which you can't go through in a kayak. It had, uh, well, it was an incredible experience. We were the first commercial run ever down the river and it was epic. Like this is the back of nowhere in India. And and Dave was just a terribly inspiring person. He's much, much missed. But um, somebody said to him, in fact, my friend Richard Gerrish went to him. I remember we were at the side of the road, the bus stopped. Richard went over to him and said, do you have a quote that I could put like in the journal of this expedition to kind of, you know, sum up like where this is gonna go. And Dave recited this quote I'm gonna give you now straight off, he knew it 100%, and you could see it in his eyes when he said it, he understood every word of it. And I've been trying to live up to that for <laughs> two decades now. So, from Sterling Hayden, but via Dave Allardyce. To be truly challenging, a voyage like a life must rest on a firm foundation of financial unrest. Otherwise, you are doomed to a routine traverse, the kind known to yachtsmen who play with their boats at sea. Cruising, it is called. Voyaging belongs to seamen and to the wanderers of the world who cannot or will not fit in. If you are contemplating a voyage and you have the means, abandon the venture until your fortunes change. Only then will you know what the sea is all about. 
I've always wanted to sail to the South Seas, but I can't afford it. What these men can't afford is not to go. They are enmeshed in the cancerous discipline of security. And in the worship of security, we fling our lives beneath the wheels of routine. And before we know it, our lives are gone. What does a person need, really need? A few pounds of food each day, heat and shelter, six feet to lie down in, and some form of working activity that will yield a sense of accomplishment. That's all, in the material sense, and we know it. But we are brainwashed by our economic system until we end up in a tomb beneath the pyramid of time payments, mortgages, preposterous gadgetry, playthings that divert our attention for the sheer idiocy of the charade. The years thunder by, the dreams of youth grow dim where they lie caked in dust on the shelves of patience. Before we know it, the tomb is sealed. Where then lies the answer? In choice. Which shall it be? Bankruptcy of purse or bankruptcy of life? Whoa. See, I read stuff like that sometimes and I wonder whether it's even worth writing a book. If that perhaps just all the great words have already been pushed together in the best possible combinations and there's no need to add anything to it. It's just gilding the lily. But <laughs> what can you say about that? Like, I think having read that first bit, you see that he was very much disenchanted with his life. Lots of people have lives they really, really enjoy, and that does involve <laughs> mortgages and you know paying for stuff. Like, I totally get that. But I think equally, you can convince yourself of that and forget to go and do things that keep you feeling young, feeling challenged, feeling wonderment at the world. And I think that's what he's aiming at. This thing of the finances, I do think there's some uh, truth in that. I think he's a little unfair that he says, you know, cruising. I think that in his world at that time, in the 50s, the, the cruising thing and the voyaging thing was different. I think there's a lot of people cruising who are voyaging in the very real sense of it. But, you know, if, you've, if you've, money is no issue whatsoever and you are setting off, he is right. He is right that it's somehow you kind of, uh, are you missing the point slightly? Like the self-reliance and the independence and the problem solving, it is a sharp metallic taste in your mouth when you are on the edge of like what's possible and it is just you and there's no catch net. There's no safety line that's gonna save you from this situation. Obviously always remain clipped on deck, <laughs> but I mean metaphorically, money does dull connectivity with real life. You know, it's a fantastic lubricant to life, don't get me wrong, and there's plenty of ways of uh, making yourself happy. Even though your life might be going down the toilet, if you've got money, you can probably cheer yourself up from moment to moment. But there is also this element of the fact that never as raw and as exposed as when you've got nothing apart from what's around you and there's no safety net whatsoever. And I think that's what he's getting at. And um, this this line here about um, bankruptcy of purse or bankruptcy of life, I have to say that's something I very much believe in because, you know, I'm, I've been so 
Oh, excited uh, recently to start getting s support and 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 enrollment and um, and people energized and positive and excited to get along and start doing this online seamanship training I'm doing over on Patreon, because I see that you know it's not like multimillionaires who put in the money in to do it. It's people that are willing to exchange that money for my experience so that they can go and do the things they want to do, even with. This situation at the moment with the lockdown, the COVID-19, they are still hammer and tong trying to get towards that thing they want because they believe in that dream and they believe in it for themselves of what they can accomplish. And they know damn well they got to get the tools and they see, okay, Chris can help us to get on the water and be safe and be aware and really understand things. I will do that because, you know, they, they want to get the most from it. And I think that's the thing is that for me as well, with all the stuff I've, you know, I make a dollar going in. If I broke even sailing around the world solo, I'll tell you right now, most people that go and do that, you're talking about massive loans, massive sponsorship, massive financial difficulties afterwards. It was only because Velux actually gave money to everybody in uh, each leg, you know, for the position you came first, second, third, fourth. And they gave money for media awards, which I won quite a lot of. They, it's only because of that they were able to keep going. There was so little money around that lot that, you know, we said you, you can't polish a turd, but you can put lipstick on a pig. And that's pretty much what we did. We just got an old boat and we made it into something so we could get on the water. And then we made it better over time as a bit of money came along. And that feeling of having to problem solve, I think it's one of those key pillars of life that you need to always have there of like you're problem solving, you're moving forward, you're doing something with every day. So as you can tell, that, that piece, of, um, <laughs> piece of prose is something that has, has meant a lot to me. And I've read it out to crews before we often would get everybody off the boat before we cross the Atlantic or something, get everybody off and get them to look back at the boat. And you know, once you're off it, you realize, wow, this, you know, it's a bigger boat, it's 60 foot, but it's only 60 foot. And everybody that comes onto it and the skills they bring with them and the energy they bring with them and the baggage they bring with them, they are going to decide how that trip goes. And I read that to them to remind them that it's not about money or position in the race or anything else. It's about taking control of the moment and being present in the here and now and that voyage and what it means. And um, that Sterling Hayden quote is something very, very important to me. So the last sailor I want to talk about as a hero of mine is Jean-Luc Vandenheide, okay? Jean-Luc is a French sailor. He is a very famous single-handed sailor. So in essence, I shouldn't be including him because he's an obvious choice. But I don't think he's necessarily that well-known to everybody, or certainly he wasn't until he... <laughs> went and won the 2018 Golden Globe race, which, um, you know, I gotta say, like when I heard uh, that he had entered that race, I looked at the rest of the field, I, I could have put money on that. I would have put thousands of dollars on that had I been in inclined to. He was obviously gonna win it. You're looking at someone, 1977, he's second in the Mini Transat. 1979, he's second in the Mini Transat. 1986, He's second in the BOC challenge, the Round the World challenge. So that's his first circumnavigation. 1990, he's third in the Vendée Globe. In 93, he's second in the Vendée Globe. In 93, he then just goes and gets fourth in the Trans-Jacques Vab across the Atlantic. 
in 95. He's third again in the BOC challenge, which is the equivalent of the VLUX Five Oceans I did. So now he's up to four Transats and it's 1995. Then he's 1998. He's, you know, he's slowing down a bit. So he just goes and gets second in the route to rum. And then in 2002, getting himself ready to go, to go and do a west about circumnavigation. Now he got pushed back a number of times on this, but in the end, he did take the record in 2004 for the west around the world, that's down the Atlantic, and then turn right and go under Cape Horn, under Australia, under Africa, and back up the opposite way people normally go. And he did that record in 122 days and 14 hours. So when it's then 2018, and I hear that he's in the race, it's like, it doesn't matter about the years. It doesn't matter because that kind of thing is all about, you know, what you know and uh, what you can do with it. And um, he was obviously going to win it and, and he did. And that, you know, it's totally awesome. I'm not going to like get into, I, I, you know, I, I don't even particularly know that much about him apart from what he did. I just have spent oh, 10 years <laughs> obsessing with uh, him and his record going west around the world. Um, in 2009, 2010, that kind of period, I was in and out of La Rochelle with the two round the world races that I did. They both um, started from there. And his boat, Adrienne, was alongside and probably is unfortunately still in La Rochelle. It's a brilliant boat. It's a fantastic boat. It was specifically built for this uh, event. It is, um, see, I just happen to know this stuff off the top of my head. It's 85 foot long. It's aluminum construction or aluminium if you're in Europe. Um, it has a massive T keel on it, which I think is four and a half or five meters. It's a 13 ton keel, 100 foot high carbon mast. And everything about it was set up for going west around the world for taking a pounding in the southern ocean it's an awesome piece of equipment but my interest in it has been for a long time because it is the route that i want to do around the world my story going and getting into sailing the way i did is that when i moved to hong kong in 2005 to go back and work for the outward bound school they had um, bought one of the old challenge boats one of shea Blythe's challenge businesses steel 67 foot boats that had raced west around the world with the likes of Chris Tibbs uh, skippering and Dee Kafari, she went on the 72s. Um, Mike Golding was one of the skippers, like big names in sailing had cut their teeth going and doing this race. So immediately I was like, oh man, I gotta go and do this. And then found out in the next sentence that the challenge business had shut its doors and that it was not possible to go and do that anymore. So that transformed over the next five years into me joining Clipper and then going east around the world. But still, it was always a bit of a theme that it was like uh, the easy way. <laughs> Although it's clearly not easy, uh, but it, it was certainly, you know, easier. So the thing about going east or going west around the world, the reason that everyone goes down the Atlantic and turns left and goes under Africa and off around the world is that as the planet turns, because of Coriolis effect, the storm systems in the southern uh, part of the planet uh, rotate the low pressure is rotating clockwise we've discussed this before so that means that the wind is at the kind of latitude you want to be sailing is primarily going from west to east and because of the winds action and because of the rotation of the planet the currents and the movement of the waves is again primarily from west to east so if you're going to go the other way and you're going to go against those waves and against those winds you know you've got a hell of a time of it uh, the the west around the world record was first set in 1971 by shea blythe he set off 
in a big, heavy, steel, impregnable, you know, tank of a boat called British Steel. And uh, he set off west around the world solo and non-stop against the prevailing tides and winds. And it took him 292 days to do that. It was an incredible thing. And at the time, it was known as uh, the impossible voyage, that it just could not be done. Okay, and he proved the naysayers wrong. The next time that anybody did anything with it was 1987. So immediately you started to get a feel for this, for this record. 1971 has never been done before. We're leaping 15 years ahead before anybody goes again. And the person that went and did it is John Sanders, who I don't know if you know, but he's got a very interesting story where he did a triple nonstop solo circumnavigation. And the first and the third circumnavigations that he did, remember it was nonstop and it was a triple ones, two of those were westward. Now his entire thing was 657 days, which is you know getting on for like two years. So whilst he did go west and he was solo and nonstop, he was never going for the record, okay? But he did do it, he did go westwards. And then it's 94, so again, we spool forward by another seven years, so now we're tw over 20 years since Shea Blythe has gone and done it. And then Mike Golding, who was one of Shea Blythe's skippers with the, um, the challenge race, takes one of the 67s, um, which is a 40-ton boat. I've driven one of those. I drove um, number 27. I can't remember what the codings are on those boats, but number 27 concert it was in its first race. Done some very heavy beating on that boat going up to Japan against Korea Shio. Fantastic boats, but you know, Great for what they do in heavy weather and uh, and heavy waves. Not awesome in light breeze and by modern performance characteristics, not great off the wind. But doesn't matter. Mike takes his boat, refits it for solo sailing, and then 167 days later comes back as the fastest person ever to sail nonstop solo west around the world. You know, it's 25 years after someone's done it before, it gets done again. And then suddenly, six years later, Philippe Monet uh, goes. And Philippe Monet took a boat called uh, Unette, which was an open 60. It was an older open 60, and it had originally had a fixed keel, and then it was changed to having a canting keel. It was a heavier boat, it was well over 10 tons. It didn't have a very big rig, a very slender, underpowered rig by what we would, um, consider today. I've actually been on board that boat and it's a, it's a fantastic glimpse at uh, the origins of open 60s, but very different from what we would think of an open 60 now, but built within a box rule as an open 60 should be. But he took that boat, he set off to, 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 to do this thing and 151 days later got back. Now, but Shea Blythe, 292, Mike Golding, 167, and then, you know, a, a carbon fiber race boat um, going doing it 151 days. It wasn't that much faster, <laughs> to be honest. And he actually described it as 150 days of hell, which um, is, is something to be said. Um, but it didn't seem to worry Jean-Luc Vanderheide, who's the hero that I have from all this, who then went and set what is the current record. 2004, he takes Adrienne. He's already been down to Cape Horn a number of times. He's had issue with dismasting, come back. He's had issues with the keel moving, he's come back. He's now got it all sorted out. He sets off again, but it means he's got good mileage. He knows the boat. He sets off and 122 days later, he's back. He's almost 30 days faster than, uh, than Philippe Monet. You know, it was a crushing amount of time to be faster 
I think what happened was that at that point it was like, well, that's it. That's all you can do. Nobody has set the record since. People have talked about going and doing it. Nothing came of it. Steve White in uh, about 2010 was talking about taking a uh, Volvo 70 and going and doing it. I've actually sailed on that boat quite recently. Um, it was the old Telefonica Black. You know, out and out speed, just an absolute demon. Like Volvo 70s obviously are the most awesome boats, but a lot of modification required. When a boat is optimized for going downwind and for crew, it has one set of characteristics. And when it's gonna go upwind and it's gonna go solo, it's like a whole different kettle of fish. And uh, I don't think that the momentum was really gained on that project to make the conversion. Whether it could or couldn't have done it, whether Steve could or couldn't have done it, I'm not gonna say anything about that but certainly it didn't get momentum, it didn't happen. The next time I know of anybody going and doing it was in 2017, and actually I heard about this person setting off on this, and I thought, oh my God, like I was just about to go and do this, and now somebody's jumped in and gonna whip it away from me in a way that I can't ever beat, but solo sailor from, uh, from France called Yves Lebevec, he took a boat called Ultime Actuelle, uh, it's a trimaran, a very, very fast boat, a hundred foot multi-hull, um, which is just capable of like incredible things, you know, speed-wise, downwind and what have you. And his concept was to hammer down to the horn as fast as he possibly could, get a window and get round the horn, which, you know, is 56 degrees south, and then get himself far enough north into the Pacific where he wouldn't be dealing with very much of the uh, heavy weather, but the speed of his boat is such that he could cruise through those flatter waters, lighter winds, more conducive kind of conditions, and still end up beating the record even though he's gone a much further distance. So he, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> it, not so good. Uh, 4.21 on the morning of December the 14th, he capsized at Cape Horn. Now he survived, which is awesome, but in 70 knots in seas of five or six meters, he coming around the horn, the boat started, flipped over and then broke up and that was the end of that. So it, it it's fantastic that he got off the boat. It's fantastic that he was saved, but it very clearly, this is one of the records in the world where it's not just an arms race. And that's what I love about this challenge. I think this challenge is one of my heroes. I guess that's the point. Jean-Luc van der Heed is the guy that epitomizes it to me. He proves to me that a human can do this. He proves that if you stick to it, then you can make it happen. But it's the challenge of it which just draws me forward and draws me forward. So this is the challenge which I have set myself to go and do on the Open 60 Falcon that I have. We can discuss this over time. I'll keep bringing it up, I'm sure. But the reason that I have the bow I have is that it's the only Open 60 which has ever been optimized for upwind work. And we can talk through the design changes that have been made to it. It is an incredibly tough boat. It's incredibly safe boat and everything about it has been made so that it can be the best possible chance for an open 60 being fast upwind. So Jean-Luc van der Heed, my final hero, um, he's out there still winning races, but the toughness of the guy to go and do that, and it, it's something that I wanna do, that's something that uh, forever keeps me inspired. So yeah, I hope uh, that's of, of some interest to you. It's. Uh, you know, how often do I think of my heroes? Like, not as often as I should, I guess, is the other point. How do I, if I say they're my heroes, how do I use that day to day? I think when all the chips are down, that's when you think about these people and it draws you forward. People in your personal life, people in your family life, 
people that you have responsibilities to. That's that's good stuff that can really, really help. That's the external stuff. But what's the internal stuff? Sometimes just the dream is not enough to pull you along. You need to have people, real human beings with real passion that really went and did it and overcame adversity and stuck to it and came out the other side. Maybe, yeah, they did have to choose life over, you know, the 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 purse, as uh, Sterling Hayden said, but they chose it and they got it. As my dad used to say, there's no pockets in shrouds, i.e. you can't take your money with you afterwards. So, you know, it's very important to, to get life experiences and to make these things happen. The people on this list, I think they're people that have that most ultimate of uh, personal characteristics, which is that they make things happen. And I will say this, because sometimes when you hear this sort of stuff, um, and the projects that people have completed and even stuff maybe that I've done or things that I'm looking towards and all the rest of it, it can feel, I find, a little crushing. They're like, oh, well, how can it possibly, how can that possibly work out? I found two things very important. Number one, the idea of the crystal staircase. You ever heard of this? That we have an idea of how we get to our dreams and that there's this like crystal staircase that is ahead of us, these steps that will take us to our ultimate objective. And we just have to do this thing and then do that thing and step up and step up and you know we will get where we're going, but in these clean, organized, sort of surgical steps that make it happen. The reality is that anybody has got anywhere doing anything, whether it's in business life, family life, personal life, sporting pursuits, anything, that you are chipping and staining and swapping out those crystals and knocking bits of wood in there and slipping off the staircase and getting back up. And by the time you ever get to your dream and you look back at the crystal staircase in air quotes, it's trashed, like you make a mess of every step along the line and you know you have to go back and restart and it's blood, sweat and tears all over it. The way that you get up the crystal staircase is messy and nasty and you have to recognize that going into it, otherwise you can be pushed back by failure and pushed back by not knowing what to do next because you think, oh my God, I'm failing. You're failing at doing the step. You just have to keep taking action. The more action you take, the more progress you make, even if you're beating your head against the brick wall. If there's enough people with enough heads, enough length of time, the wall will crack, okay? You just have to keep beating on it, beating on your craft, beating on your skills, beating on your dream until you get where you wanna go. And the other thing which has come to mind more recently is uh, I'm, I'm into cars in a big way. You know, I, I kind of came up through mechanicing and I did a little bit of racing and stuff when I was younger. I, I have compared what's going on in sailing. It's often drawn like the Formula One of sailing, although there is nothing in sailing called Formula One. That's not exactly true. And I didn't really realize this until recently. There's lots of white sunglasses and, you know, uh, pit lane reporters and very nicely decked out overalls and crews and thousands of dollars of tools and spare parts up the yin yang. And that is what identifies Formula One. And when you take that and you look at the America's Cup or you look at, I know, TP52s going out on the water, racing hard or uh, the Vendee Global Science, it's easy to get the idea that it's all shiny and organized and like, man, they're standing at the top of a pristine crystal staircase in a crystal house in a crystal world. Like they're just so perfect. It's not like that at all. And what I've started doing recently uh, is I started watching NASCAR, which I, um, it's got this reputation, which I don't think is very positive, but it is very interesting. And that's just, don't worry about anything to do with it apart from this one element. 
it's closed wheel racing, which means that when the cars come together and hit each other, and there's always loads of crashes in NASCAR, and it's, you know, they are going round and round the circuit, but as I've watched more and more, I realize there's a lot of skill in it. Like, you can't just step up and go and be a NASCAR driver. But what's very interesting is that when they have these big crashes, if that happens in Formula One, it's the end of the story. They're so delicate, those cars, they just blow apart in a million pieces, and that's the end of that. But in NASCAR, because they essentially kind of sort of look like cars, like normal cars you'd have on the road, a lot less damage happens, a lot of it's quite superficial. And because of the way that that sport is run, they can bring them back in and like change axles and change, uh, you know, like major elements in the engine. They can straighten things out. They have like these big sheets of sticky uh, composite that they stick all over everything to get the bodywork back up and going. And they get them back out on the race course so they can get a couple more laps and laps in NASCAR adds up to points so that for the championship, you see. so. They run this very high level thing in this like uh, bush mechanic kind of way of like sticking stuff together and like things are on fire and they're putting them out. And, and it's very, very refreshing to come to having been in this European world of um, it, you're only ever good at something if it's like you're at the top level and uh, you're winning everything and you've got like everything totally organized. And I think NASCAR reminds me that you can still be competing, succeeding, uh, being a success in whatever you want to do, whether that's a voyage, whether that's something in your personal life, it doesn't matter if all the wheels fall off. As long as you can get the wheels back on, you're good to go. Go and get some more laps in, go and get some more points. It doesn't matter if you've been in a big shunt and all spun around, as long as you're safe and well, and they're very, very safe in NASCAR now, since like 2001 was the last uh, death in NASCAR. They, um, as long as they can get that thing back on the road somehow, they go. And I think there's a wonderful um, connectivity in, in the, certainly the life I'm leading that, okay, wheels off, like old Slocum, get himself up on the beach there, that's annoying. <laughs> get the anchor out, get the wheel back on, get this project back on the, on the, on the tracks and let's get going. And uh, that attitude and that methodology is something that I find incredibly inspiring. So. Oh, okay, well, for any of them that wants to uh, check out uh, YouTube, of course, we've got that going on, the Mariner on YouTube. We've got all sorts of videos there. I've now separated the podcast and the Mariner videos completely, so you won't hear this on YouTube, but equally, you won't hear the YouTube stuff uh, over here. And then, of course, now we've started the online seamanship training, which is me taking all of the experience I've got from all of these hundreds of thousands of miles and all of these um, experiences, and it's a very in-depth seamanship course. This, I hope it is, it is designed specifically to be stuff you can't get elsewhere. If I think I'm starting to get into stuff that um, the RYA covers or um, US sailing covers, I kind of steer away from it. Um, I'm trying to get into all those things which, which make a better seafarer, make a better voyager, make you able to problem solve, get the wheels back on, keep going, keep safe. That's what I want to get into there. And obviously we're doing it on Patreon because in the times the way they are right now, no one's got money to be putting out for hundreds of dollars for expensive online courses for anything. So from $5 up to $100. And for those that want to get their name on the hull of the boat that's going around the world, $200. But um, if you want to get each lesson each week, they're at least half an hour. Um, it's 20 bucks a month and you can come and go as you like and start and stop when you like. And um, so far, so good. We've got lots of people joining it. It's uh, fantastic because it means at the most basic level, I can 
focus entirely on this. I can move forward from the disaster, which is COVID-19 and how it's affected Spartan. And that means we can come back fighting and come back strong, get the wheels back on, get on the next step somehow on the crystal staircase and, um, and keep moving forward. So if you don't take anything else out of today, you know, have a think about who it is that inspires you. It could be people in your family. It could be friends. It could be authors like Sterling Hayden. I don't know really that much about Sterling Hayden at all, but that one thing across 50 years now, whatever it is, since he wrote it, it communicates to me. And old Joshua Slocum, 60 mile up the road here, he was born. And then here now, after 120 years, he communicates to me. And I take that and I use it as the rocket fuel that allows me to move forward every day in small and large things. So I hope you've got some heroes you can identify. Tough times right now and any tough times in life, take time each day to spend an hour uh, reading or on YouTube or podcast, whatever it is, find positive things you can bring into your life. Find positive inputs that you go out and you find. Don't just wait for them to come rolling across the TV or rolling across the radio put in inspirational videos and then throw away ones you don't like until you find something because all these inspirational videos are doing mostly is quoting incredible things from incredible people who have made it happen from history. And if you can, if you can get into that, if you can tap into that, um, it gets you through the tough times and it gets you out the other side so you can get on with what's important to you. So wherever you are and whatever you're doing, whatever you're dreaming today, I hope that you are safe and sound and I look forward to chatting to you again in the next episode of The Mariner. Cheers.